Good evening and welcome to Christchurch Cathedral in Cincinnati. On behalf of the Dean, the very Reverend Gail Greenwell, and clergy and staff and members of the Cathedral Congregation, I just want to take this opportunity to welcome each and every one of you who are gathered here and our online community that is gathering um, in various locations throughout the Diocese of Southern Ohio. We have been, for the past month and a half, ever since Ash, uh, Ash Wednesday, coming to, um, to really delve into what the implications of the book of Exodus is for Christians in our journey. And a small capstone that has been given to us, or a caption that has been given to us, is that Exodus is represents the movement from bondage to liberation. Our bishop, the Right Reverend Thomas E. Bridenthal, has been has been gracious in teaching us, and we've been edified by his teaching. Today, we're honored to have uh, two people who are near and dear to our hearts here leading us in a session. You may know them uh, from their podcasts on the DSO Big Read uh, media platform. Carl Stevens is um, a priest in the Diocese of Southern Ohio, and Rabbi Daniel Bogard is our rabbi in residence, um, which is a program that has been initiated by the Dean of the Cathedral and the Bishop of the Cathedral, uh, Bishop, uh, Bishop of the Diocese. So welcome, Carl, and welcome, Daniel, to this session, and we're looking forward to seeing the magic happen um, live. Hand it over to you. Thank you. Uh, so... We are going to be putting this out on our podcast feed, so I'll just start it the way we always do, which is, uh, welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. I'm Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And uh, since we are here in front of a live audience, we are going to do really what we usually do, although we are going to take a little bit of time midway to explain. Um, but what you should know about our dynamic, first of all, is Daniel has all the wisdom and I make the stupid <laughs> jokes. This is, this is how this works. Um, so what we do every week is we do what's called a Hervuta Bible study. The other thing, if you've been listening, you know, is that my pronunciation of Hebrew has gone from terrible to just very bad. Um, but will you? Will I, I agree. You've definitely improved very bad. <laughs> thank I, you. I, I, thank you. Um, so, will you explain uh, what a Hravuta Bible study is? Hravuta. Hravuta. Yes. You can uh, practice in front of a mirror, and if you've got spittle on the mirror when you're done, you have done it right. Hravuta. Uh, this is the trick. Hravuta. Yeah. Uh, so, I was just in uh, your afternoon services, your evening services. Uh, and there was a line right at the end that really stuck out to me, that anywhere that there are two or three... Gathered together in his name. Keep going. Name, you are in the midst. You are in the midst. So we've got almost the exact same line in the Talmud, which is uh, sort of the oral Torah. Uh, in Judaism, it stands as equal to the, the written Torah, to the written Bible. Uh, but we've got a line there that's almost the same where it says, where two or three are gathered in study the presence of God is there. Uh, and this is really a core Jewish idea, 
that you should always be learning and that real learning can't happen by yourself. Uh, that learning happens when you are sitting across from ideally one other person, but small groups is the idea, uh, where you read a text out loud and you argue over the text, uh, back and forth and back and forth. And the belief is that through doing this, something greater can emerge. Uh, now, the beauty of Chavruta, too, is if you have a partner that you work with regularly, who you study with regularly, it becomes as much about understanding that person's mind as it does about the text itself. Uh, so it's really a beautiful relational piece uh, and really changes, I think, what it means to study. But this was new to you, so what are your reflections after 15 weeks of this or 20 uh, weeks? I, I like the fact that we're experiencing some kind of mind meld. This yeah. is a, it's a beautiful idea. Um, I, I think, so that idea of argument is a very important one. And I, we might want to say discussion if we're going to be nice about it. Okay. Um, but when I, when I teach youth, the Bible and youth group, one thing I say about it is uh, scripture is a discussion. Like you will find different opinions in scripture. You will find people who just outright disagree with each other, uh, James and Paul being an obvious example, but uh, in the Jewish scriptures, uh, wisdom literature, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes seem to be in pretty deep argument, right? Um, and to me, that says, oop, I'm touching my microphone like the bishop. Sorry, bishop. Um, but to me, that says that this is what we should be doing, that the people who put the canon together put it together with this in mind, that what we are to do is sit with each other in discussion, look at the really hard things, the really big questions, bring our own experience and our own opinion and our own knowledge and study to it, and then learn from each other and grow in faith. Um, and so that, to me, is what this has been. Nice. Yeah. Um, so tonight, I'm going to introduce David Dreisbach, who is uh, the third Beatle over there, and David has a microphone, and what we are going to do is we're going to do a Ravuta Bible study. Um, we're going to go verse through verse through chapter 23, simply because that is a point we have gotten up to. We've been doing this podcast for 24 weeks now. The first one was purely introductory, so we are at chapter 23 of the book of Exodus, and um, we interrupt each other a lot. Constantly. And our hope is that you will interrupt us too. So we're not going to, like, take questions at the end. I mean, we might if there's time, but I doubt it because uh, we usually take a lot of time over this. Um, but if you have a question, a comment, a disagreement, anything in the midst of what we're saying, signal David. Stand up so they can all see you. Um, and he will bring you a microphone, and you can just interrupt. You can just say, I have a question, and we'll... If we hear, when we hear you, we'll stop what we're saying and, and try and answer. And for people watching out, hopefully, is the live stream working now, as far as we know? Okay, well, if the live stream is working, there's a number that people can text. Do you know the number offhand? Can you say it into the microphone so people can hear? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so what you need to do is text the text of DSO Lent 
2-3-3-2-2-2. And then you'll get an automatic reply. And from that automatic re- reply, um, you, can, you can ask your questions. Right. Okay. So hopefully we'll be interrupted by people out in the vast universe, too. So any, any questions or interruptions now? Anyone want to attempt to say chavuta? <laughs> no? Okay. I think we should have brought a prize. Had everyone <laughs> line up and do it. And, you know, yeah. We should have. Okay. Uh, so we are going to dive in, starting with verse 1 of chapter 23. And how about I read it and then go for you can it. model interrupting me. I'm very good at the interrupting okay. part. So this is, just to give you a preview, Moses is at Mount Sinai at this point in the story. He has actually been up on Mount Sinai now for three or four chapters. Yeah. Uh, for quite a while. The people are down at the foot of, of the mountain wondering what has happened to him. And eventually they're going to start having curious ideas about golden calves. Um, but at this point, he is up on top of the mountain and he is still receiving the commandments from God. He received the Ten Commandments, which we're all very familiar with. And now he's just receiving more and more and more commandments. So, verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with the wicked as an, to act as a malicious witness. So, we've got a little bit of Rashi here. Yeah. Uh, so, for those who don't know Rashi, uh, if you're a loyal listener of the podcast, we talk about him all the time. Lived about a thousand years ago in France. Uh, evidently made his uh, side money by making wine. Uh, which explains maybe why uh, or where the creativity of some of his commentaries comes from. Uh, but Rashi, what he does is he summarizes the normative Jewish view on the Bible up to that point. So Rashi is always the first stop when you're looking at a commentary. Uh, it doesn't mean that that's the only view of any text, but if you're looking for what is the Jewish view of Exodus 23, whatever, Rashi is the place that you start. Uh, so Rashi interrupts us here and says that from this line, you must not carry false rumors. Uh, from that, we get the idea that you can't even do this to retrieve monies that are already yours. So the point is being that he's talking about uh, how this applies in context, right? Can we break a law to rectify an injustice? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so can we break law to rectify an injustice? And Rashi clearly says... Rashi's clearly saying no here. Right. Uh, I'm not sure that's always what our answer is, though, right? This is a... Ways don't justify the means. Yeah. The de- no, I said that wrong. Destination doesn't justify the means. But something like that. <laughs> With great power comes great responsibility. Exactly, yeah. Um, and one could think of all sorts of reasons why one might break a law to, to rectify an injustice. Uh, I could think of like the Pentagon Papers, for instance, huh. or any number of moments where uh, there's been whistleblowing, which huh. is, I think, illegal, right? Though I think the point here is that you can't spread a false rumor, even if the effect of the false rumor would be a positive. So if it's true, you can spread it. If it's true, you could. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank you. That's right? Very but, clear. So I think the idea is you can't uh, tell someone something fake even if you know it'll convince them to vote the way you want them to vote. Right. There we go. Okay, so if the outcome is good, it doesn't matter. Don't lie. Yeah. Okay. Alright, see how this is working? So we're now on verse 2 and that only took like 5 minutes. And this is much more efficient than we normally are. <laughs> 
verse 2. You shall not follow majority in wrongdoing. When you bear witness in a lawsuit, you shall not side with the majority so as to pervert justice. You shall not be partial to the poor in a lawsuit. Okay, what do we take away from this? Let's start with the first piece. You shall neither side with the mighty to do wrong. You shall not give perverse testimony in a dispute as to pervert it in favor of the mighty. What's the idea here? Um, well, I think it's don't, don't allow yourself to be suborned by whatever is easiest, and often that means going along with the powerful. Okay. Um, but I, wa- I want to slide you into a talk about the oven of acne because we, uh, we kind of planned it for this moment. So one of our questions here is, is about community and about the knowledge we ourselves can bring to the betterment of learning within a community in a, in a lot of ways and how community is formed. Exodus is, a lot of it is about the formation of community, this community of ex-slaves who are wandering out into um, the wilderness and then coming to the promised land. Um, and a lot of the, the this kind of Bible study is really about community, right? Maybe it's community just between two people, but it's about being formed within community to the point where you actually feel yourself changed. Uh, metanoia in some way, a, a turning of the heart, right? Um, but there is a question, and I... And I kind of heard it after the bishop talked last week. Somebody at, at the parish I was watching his talk with said, I don't, I don't know why we would bring anything that's not in the Bible into our discussion at all. Mm. Like, what is this whole Midrash thing about? Why? So Rashi is summarizing a thousand years of Midrash, but why should we care? Why should we care? Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's the why should we care question about uh, why should we care as people who aren't Jewish. Uh, but it's also a question within Judaism, right? Why should we care about all these layers of commentary? Isn't the point at some level to go back to what the Bible says? Right. Uh, so this becomes a core question in Judaism. So let's go ahead and look at this text. Yeah. Uh, if you've got this, if you are streaming, you should have a link to this text, uh, to the sheet. Uh, it's in- on the adsobigread.org site. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, and if you're here, you should have it in front of you. Okay. Oh, yeah. uh, right over there. Right over there. Yeah. Is there anyone else who needs one? Throw a hand up. Is there anyone who wants to read it beyond the two of us? Oh, yeah. We'd love for someone to read it. I see. Oh, yeah. All there right. There we go. Good. You have it before you. David will bring you a microphone. Excellent. Just read the first line. Um, so that entire section that says Talmud... Bava Metzia. Well done. Oh, yeah. uh, that entire section. And we're going to interrupt you a lot. Oh, yeah. Sorry. So don't, don't be offended. Rabbi Eliezer and uh, the so, uh, Jump to the line before that, the italics. Follow the majority? Oh, sorry. Follow the majority. Okay, we're going to pause you there. <laughs> you see, we get real far, real quickly. So that is the line that this is coming out of the text from. So if you go back to verse 2, it says, uh, that you shall not go after the majority for evil. The rabbis feel totally comfortable pulling from that just this one line, follow the majority. After the majority. 
so please continue. Rabbi Eliezer and the sages debated a point of law regarding the ritual purity of a certain type of oven. Rabbi Eliezer declared it clean, and the sages declared it unclean. Okay. So you don't really have to understand this concept, but there is an issue with ritual purity and impurity within Judaism, particularly within the Judaism uh, when the temple stood 2,000 years ago. And any vessel made of clay can become ritually impure. You can't use it. But there's a loophole that says that if a vessel is broken, it can't acquire impurity. So Rabbi Eliezer comes up with this great idea. He says, I'm going to make an oven. I'm going to break it. I'm going to put sand between the pieces. Voila, it's a technical innovation. Can't become impure. He gathers the great council of all the rabbis. And it's think sort of like the council of cardinals. The idea is that after the majority, uh, that's the will of God. So they get together. They vote. The rabbis declare it. We'll keep going. Day, Rabbi Eliezer brought forward every imaginable argument, but they did not accept them. Okay, they, so he starts by bringing the logic of it, and they totally reject the logic of it. Go on. Said he to them, if the law agrees with me, let this carob tree prove it. Thereupon the carob tree was torn a hundred cubits of its place. Others say four hundred cubits. <laughs> okay, so first of all, right, what happens here? He, he uh, is trying to do a kind of nature miracle to prove that nature is on his side. Nature's on his side. And nature agrees with him. Yeah. Right? But this is so Talmudic that right in the middle of this description of trees getting up and dancing from the miracle, the rabbis have to stop and debate, was it 100 cubits that the trees went or was it 400 cubits? Right? <laughs> that that's the question that really needs to be raised here. Um, yeah, yeah. We gotta, we'll bring the microphone over to you. Uh, <coughs> and we can't keep going with you as our reader. I, I'll warn you, I think you're going to have to be our next reader now, too. Okay. Uh, and, and while the microphone is moving, is this a little like if you were having an argument with your office mate and you said, the ficus is on my side, and the ficus started to move? Okay, yes, that, yes. That, I'm just trying to contemporize yep. the story here. Okay, good. Yep. All right. Okay, so I'm just trying to understand the context of what you're talking about, because I'm looking at verse 2, and it says you must not be led into wrongdoing by the majority. Great, right? So what you got to understand here is there is a willingness by the rabbis. And when I say the rabbis, what I'm talking about are the rabbis who lived about 2,000 years ago who uh, wrote down sort of the basic texts of rabbinic Judaism today. Uh, but there is a willingness by the rabbis to totally take a text out of its context and look at its grammar or its whatever and use it in an entirely different way. That's sort of what we're going to talk about, actually. So I'm glad that you're seeing that. Okay. So, like, I can, from a mathematical perspective, I can make it to say what I want it to? Hold on to that question. <laughs> Hold on to that question. So they're like, they're like stealing half a phrase in order to talk about something that is kind of tangentially related to the yes. actual verse of scripture, but they will use it to eventually come back around in a way. Ask it again at the end if it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Will you keep reading for us? Do you mind? We've got to give you the microphone back, though. Um, so are we on the longer paragraph? Again, he said. Okay. Again, he said to them, if the law agrees with me, let the stream of water prove it. Whereupon the stream of water flowed backwards. 
Said the sages, no proof can be brought from a stream of water. These are very skeptical sages here, right? Like, I feel like if someone made the streams go backwards, I'd be like, cool, yeah, Yeah, with you. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) But no. Keep going. Said Rabbi Eliezer, if the law agrees with me, let the walls of the study hall prove it, whereupon the walls incline to fall. But Rabbi Joshua rebuked them, saying... Rebuked the walls, evidently. (laughs) When scholars are engaged... I don't have any... In a halachic, meaning in a Jewish legal. Uh, Think of it like a canon law. It's the closest. When scholars are engaged in a halachic dispute... Well done! Extra points. What have you to interfere? Hence they did not fall, in deference to Rabbi Joshua, nor did they resume standing upright in deference to Rabbi Eliezer. And they are still standing, <laughs> thus inclined. This is the Jewish leaning tower of Pisa or something, <laughs> exactly. right? Um, you get the feeling that this existed for a while, and there was a building that people would point to and be like, that's where Rabbi Eliezer and Joshua. Yep. Um, keep going. Finally, Rabbi Eliezer said to them, if the law is as I say, may it be proven from heaven. Okay, right, so he's reasonably turning to the ultimate authority here. Because we've had now three different miracles attesting to his correctness in this. There then issued a heavenly voice which proclaimed, What do you want of Rabbi Eliezer? The law is as he says. So you don't get it in the uh, English here, but it's worth noting that in the Hebrew or the Aramaic that the Talmud's written in, the heavenly voice is in the feminine. Right? How many of us imagined some deep, booming, masculine voice when that was spoken there? Uh, but in the Hebrew, it's very clear. The Shekhinah, the, the presence of God. Yeah, it's an idea that comes about a thousand years after this, but that's the idea. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Rabbi Joshua stood on his feet and said, The Torah is not in heaven. <laughs> We take no notice of heavenly voices, since you, God, have already, at Sinai, written in the Torah to follow the majority. Okay, so do you see how out of context they took the, just, they took those two words, after the majority. But, they're also quoting Deuteronomy back at God. The Torah is not in heaven, is from Deuteronomy. Okay, and, but it actually says in the Torah not to follow the majority. Yeah, whatever. So, uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, the Torah is not in heaven. Right? If you look at this in Deuteronomy, the idea behind that line is that the Torah is understandable. Everyone can access it. It's uh, the line something like the Torah is not in heaven. It's not across the sea that you should need to swim towards it. Right? Something everyone has access to and can understand. But they are taking that line also out of context. Right? And God is interrupting their court proceedings. And just as they said, what do trees know about Jewish law? They look at God and they say, God, you have no standing in this court. It's pretty chutzpah dick, right? Yeah. Um, chutzpah, there's another good word for your practicing. Uh, nervy. Okay. Keep Rabbi going. Nathan subsequently met Elijah the prophet and asked him. Okay, so first of all, Elijah died like 1,300 years before this moment. Um, but you just sort of got to love this, right? You have the sense that like uh, Rabbi Natan's sitting there like in a tavern or something, and he looks over and who's the next guy next to him but Elijah. 
So Rabbi Nathan asks the prophet Elijah, what did God do at that moment? Elijah replied, he smiled and said, my children have triumphed over me. My children have triumphed over me. Okay. (laughs) Right? So we've got this crazy story where the rabbis say to God, God, you have no standing in this court. Right? They're trying to figure out what Jewish law rightfully should be. And the response to God is that it's a human process. You gave us the Torah so that we could figure this out. And God smiles and says, this is what I wanted. This is what I wanted. And actually this word, you have triumphed over me, because Hebrew is, you can turn it in all sorts of different ways. You can read it as triumphed over me, or you can read it as expanded me. You have expanded me. So, Carl, what do you... You've talked a lot about how you really like this story. So what do you like about this? Um, well, I mean, I like everything we just said. I like the, the idea that we are not only permitted, but actually encouraged to bring ourselves into this text, to argue with it, to argue with each other. I think uh, Christians are often very threatened by this idea, right? We, we want to think of tea as a a truth with a capital T and say we know it, we've got it, we're fine, it's all okay. And and one of the benefits to me of of doing this study with you over the last um, 24 weeks is to to encounter a mindset that doesn't need to do that, that can say um, God actually gave us these things for us to argue with them, to argue with each other, to learn from that process. Um, that is what scripture is for. It's not, um, it's not like a style manual for our lives. Mm. Um, we are supposed to be engaged with it. We're supposed to be in relationship with it. We're not supposed to just uh, read it once and say, okay, we're done. Set it aside. Got that. I know what to do now. I'm going to move on. So that's what I like about it. I don't know what the rest yeah, of Yeah, any think. thoughts or reactions? Does anyone really not like this? So the, the piece I usually talk about when I talk about this, too, is that one of the ancient Jewish symbols, at least in medieval days, it's not so uh, applicable anymore, was the pearl. The pearl was a Jewish symbol. Most Jews don't even realize this anymore. Uh, and it's because a pearl is created when a grain of sand enters into an oyster and layer upon layer upon layer form around the pearl. And so for Judaism, the Torah, the five books of Moses, our, our core text becomes that grain of sand. It's the irritant that causes the pearl to develop. But the notion becomes just as you would never, God forbid, cut open a pearl to get back to that grain of sand, so too is the value of Judaism or our processes found not in the initial point that starts it, but in the process that we're engaging in now, our layer of the pearl that we're on here. Did that make sense? And that, um, you mentioned the Talmud kind of at the beginning of this. Uh, do we, okay, yeah. So that's what the Talmud is in some ways, those layers of the pearl. It's another layer of the pearl, yeah. So the Talmud is commentary, story, a, a whole bunch of different things, but all of which reflect on text. Yes. Just like we yes. just saw. We, did we have, yeah. Well, I just wanted to respond to what you said. Please. Um, so this idea of the irritant. Mm-hmm. In that process, 
I think for me, I relate to that. That's how I change. It's through that process that I can change internally and then maybe externally as well. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And I'll say that's why I used the word argument before. It's also the word you use in Hebrew, machloket. Um, But uh, because to me, that's the beauty of what we do is we irritate each other. Um, (laughs) I I think my wife would say the same thing. Uh Uh, But it's that irritation that causes us to grow. Uh, And that's the beauty, I think, of the Chavruta method. Okay. Any other thoughts before we move on? We have Diane, is that right? Okay. So just for a little bit of context for you guys, I'm actually new to the Episcopal Church. Okay. Um, Me too. But as I, well, <laughs> as I initially read this, I was like, okay, these guys are a little bit shady. But then I think about, as I'm learning, one of the principles of, our, of the Episcopal Church is that we think about scripture, tradition, and reason. And so you kind of wrapped that up for me that it really takes it back to let's have a conversation about it and what makes sense and what doesn't make sense at this point, even if it's a point in time. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's why. Thank you. That, he asked me why I like this so much, and I think you just answered for me. So thank you for that. Um, and I also, also say that's been my experience with the Episcopal Church, too. Um, I feel like I found my people. Uh, <laughs> It totally is. My wife keeps looking at me and saying, you're not going to go back to Jews, are you? It's... <laughs> um, uh, okay, well, we've done really well. We've made it through two verses so far, yes. so we're right on track. Yes. Uh, should we jump back in? Is there, I, since this is going around, will some, oh, no, you don't have copies of the Bible, so you can't read for us. Yeah, so I'll, I'll... Oh, you do? Whatever. We don't like each other's translations. Uh, we don't like our own translations often. Yeah. Uh, so whoever has the microphone or pass it to someone, will you read starting at verse 4, please? I think we got three in, actually. Yeah. When you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you shall bring it back. When you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would hold back from setting it free, you must help set it free. Okay, let's pause here. What's the moral idea that's emerging? Um, so the, the freedom thing seems to me to, it will apply later in the chapter too, because it has to do, um, with laying aside of burdens. It has to do with, uh, somewhat the idea of the Sabbath and of, of treating the alien among us and even our animals, um, with the same created grace that we receive <laughs> in, in rest, uh, for verse 4, the thing I couldn't help thinking about was last week you told me something I never knew, um, which is that, and let's see if I get it right, and you, you can correct me, but that the city of Jerusalem is kind of mid-country, right? And south of it is pasture land, yep. kind of wilderness. So there are, Think of all your Dave, King David stories all occur in the south because that's where the shepherds are. Right, so that's where the flocks and the shepherds are, and the north is under cultivation. Um, so it's all Settled farmers. farms, and stuff. green. It's still true, by the way. Uh, if you go south of Jerusalem, you'll hit the desert. If you go north of Jerusalem, you'll hit uh, trees. 
And um, so in times of famine, people who, have, who are pasturing their flocks to the south are going to come north to where there's granary and there's food stored. Um, and that this causes all sorts of societal problems, really, right? You're constantly being invaded by your kinsmen, but also people who are fairly different from you in the way they live their lives. They're always coming mm-hmm. north. And so a lot of these rules in Exodus are in part about that, right? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, how so. do we treat our neighbor's livestock? Well, why is that a question? It's because every once in a while we have these neighbors bring their livestock into our land, and then we've got to figure it out. What are we going to do about this? So I don't know if this particular verse speaks to that, but now I'm just prone to see <laughs> livestock and think <laughs> cultural conflict. Yeah. <laughs> so. You know, I really like the notion here, though, of your... Uh, of your enemy. Yeah. Because it's the obligations that we have within a society, economic obligations <coughs> to, to people who we think of as our enemy. Uh, that does not forgive any sorts of moralities of theft. Yeah. Yeah. We don't get to act immorally if we don't like the person. Yeah. We have to act morally regardless. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, but I think about this like in the United States how often do we excuse our behavior towards someone else because they're from a different tribe right mm-hmm. they vote a different way than we do they watch a different news uh, they're a different religion they come from a, a different racial background whatever this looks like how often do we do that right um, we let that excuse how we relate to them yeah um and the, the verse 5 about finding the donkey that belongs to this enemy or the person who hates you and needing to help set it free means that we're not only responsible to them, we're also responsible to their stuff, in a way. Mm-hmm. We're, we're responsible to, the, to their whole zone of control in treating that morally as well. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, that, gets, that gets harder. In some ways. If finders keepers does not exist within Jewish law. Right. <laughs> uh, it's actually the opposite. It's finders, now you're obligated to go figure out whose it was. Yep. Uh, which is much more problematic, I think. Yeah. Uh, and much more aspirational. Okay, should we, should we go Keep on? going. Verse 6. We're cruising. Keep reading. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in their lawsuits. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and those in the right, for I will not acquit the guilty. Okay, so we're, we're dealing here with laws for judges. Is that the idea? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Um, we're now in the, the realm of lawsuits. So obviously somebody didn't obey the previous verses, and therefore they are fallen under the law mm-hmm. in some way. Rashi actually uses this uh, to say that if there is any level of doubt or if there's any individual who is doubting a capital punishment where someone's going to be put to death, that person may not be put to death and has to be brought back to court. Uh, That that emerges as a core Jewish law uh, from this text. Uh, Right. That interestingly, a text that's dealing with the death penalty becomes a way that Jewish law subverts and undermines the possibility of the death penalty. You want to go on? You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the officials and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. 
I mean, that seems pretty clear. Um, but I think, I think one could extend it pretty far, right? One could say one should not take any influence. I mean, are there Jewish lobbyists, Daniel? There are Jewish <laughs> lobbyists. Actually, right now is the American-Israel Political Action Committee uh, meeting in uh, Washington, D.C. Okay. Um, so how do they think around this? I mean, maybe they're not giving bribes. I, I want to give them their due. But. Yeah, no, I, you know, I think when we think about campaign finance in general, and, and that's actually what Rashi ends up doing with this, is he says that even if you are the sort of person who will not be influenced by someone giving you money, you still may not take that money. Uh, right, it's a recognition that at some level, any political donation, any lobbying effort, even if you try real hard not to have an effect on you, it, you can't help it. Right. Um, okay, so we're subverting the American political system right here in Exodus. Uh, should we go on to the, to the next part? This might. You shall not oppress a resident alien. You know the heart of an alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Okay, let's talk about this a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I like this word alien that you have here. What do you have in your translation? Also alien. I've, so I've, alien. I've got stranger. Um, it's really the core idea is someone without formal status where you are. Uh, so we are at some level talking about undocumented people. Uh, or to say it differently, we're talking about the most vulnerable in a society. Uh, I think Marilyn has a question. Hold on, we got a microphone being handed to you. Right, right behind you. Oh. There we go. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to say, could that alien stranger be translated into immigrant? Certainly. Certainly. Uh, in fact, I would say that there is a core level of this word, which means immigrant. It is someone who is not uh, native. native to the society in which that person is living and is in a vulnerable state because of that. That's the core idea here. Um, so this is actually the most commonly repeated commandment in the entirety of the Torah. 36 times you get this, or some variation uh, on this. So you... We've talked about this a lot. Yeah. Uh, but to me, I think it's, it's the morality of this that's really powerful. Right? You shall not oppress the stranger. Why shall you not oppress the stranger? Because you have been the stranger. Right? What stands out here is it's not because I am the Lord your God. This is not a commandment because I told you so. This is a commandment because of what you've experienced in history. And this, I think, becomes the core Jewish idea. Uh, which is that the bad things that have happened to you as an individual or as a collective don't give you special privileges. They give you special obligations. Right? Um, how often do we play that game where it's about, I've been the victim and therefore let me list all of the ways that I should be. Right? This is, I've been the victim and therefore I am commanded to make sure there is no one around me who is being victimized. Um, that it becomes an obligation. So I, I like the word feel um, in that translation. You know what it feels mm -hmm. like. Because it seems to me that that also is meant to stir up a memory mm -hmm. in, in, in the people who were once the stranger, once the aliens. And the memory itself has great value. Mm -hmm. It's not just that, you know, you'll treat somebody else more justly. But you know how it feels, and therefore you're gonna you're gonna look back. You're gonna remember. 
but you're also going to look forward because you, you're able to recollect what that mm-hmm. feels like. I just think that's such a great word. Yeah. In a way, I think it's a little like what we were talking about with the oven of acne, right? So God says, I gave you the Torah so that you can figure it out through disputation with each other. But could we also say that God gives us experience in history so that we can figure it out, right? Like these are also gifts of God, you know. Um, in Christianity, we have, like, the, the book of Scripture and the book of nature, the idea that you can understand or come to understand God's nature by looking at flowers and trees and the way nature works. But the, I think we also might have a book of memory and a book of history, right, that we can understand our place in the world and what we are supposed to be by remembering. Yeah. I, to me, this is the core question for Jews today, and maybe it's the core question for anyone engaged in a religious tradition today. Um, you know, for 2,000 years, it's been really easy for Jews to understand what it's like to be the stranger. It's just been the everyday life of most Jews. Uh, but in the United States, at least for my generation and the generation that came before me, uh, for the 80% of American Jews uh, who are either uh, white identifying or white passing. Uh, 20% of American Jews are Jews of color, by the way. Uh, but for those 80% who are uh, white identifying or white passing, so many of us have never experienced meaningful anti-Semitism or oppression in our lives. And so the question is, can we use these stories of our past oppression to teach us empathy for the oppressed today when we're not actually experiencing it ourselves? Um, you know, this is changing a little bit in the Jewish world. Uh, I had never experienced significant anti-Semitism in my life until about 2015. And now it is, uh, I mean, it's nothing, it's certainly not like being a person of color in the United States or a person who's a uh, part of the LGBT community. But it has, it's an impact in my life in a way that it never had been. And it's an impact, I see it, with Jewish teenagers who are having a different experience now than I certainly did as a teenager. I can tell you it's been the last two to two and a half years that I have significantly experienced this. Um, To me, it started with an uptick in Islamophobia in this country, uh, and pretty quickly it turned towards anti-Semitism, too. Um, I've had uh, swastikas drawn on my seminary. I have been put on a list by white supremacists who were collecting a a list of Jews to target online. Um, I was on a uh, public transit in D.C. wearing my kippah, I had someone come and yell at me that this is not my country and I should leave. Um, Wow. Yeah. And none of that is anything I had ever experienced in my whole life uh, prior to the last few years. And I I think that speaks to something going on in our culture. Um, I think we give a lot of credence to personal story and personal memory. So there are, you know, in a lot of, like, you know, spirituality circles even, we need to tell our story. And I know the clergy in the room, we had to write our spiritual biographies before going to seminary. So, And I think probably a lot of daytime TV is made up with personal story <laughs> type things. But we don't tell our cultural story um, that much. Hmm. Nor do we really maybe tell our church story that much, to tell the truth. Like we tell the story of scripture on Sunday, but I, I don't know how often we're 
Well, sometimes we celebrate. Gail, you're probably celebrating 200 years of the cathedral, right? So you're telling that church story now, probably in a way you wouldn't have been five years ago. But um, I think we need to get back to that. I think we need to learn to tell our story as a nation in such a way that asserts very rightly that we know the heart of an alien because we were all aliens (laughs) in a strange land, right? Like this story is in some ways the American story, the story of the Exodus is. Um, But one of the the greater things I read this year, and um, I'm not going to remember the the author right uh, right now, um, was this article that said, this story is different depending who you are, the story of the Exodus. So if you are a, a white European, you came here and you got off the ship and you said, this is the promised land. I have made it, and everything is milk and honey from this point forward. If you were enslaved and brought from Africa, you got off the ship and you said, I am a slave in Egypt, right? Like, I, um, the, I, not only is the promised land not here, we, didn't even, we haven't even started the Exodus yet, right? There's a reason this Exodus story has been a story that has resonated with so many oppressed peoples for the last 3,000 years. Right. But even our reading it depends on our social location. Yeah. It's what I, you know, is what I learned from that article, right? Like, who you are is going to affect how you read it. And one good thing we can do for telling the story is listen to each other as we tell it, right? To say, what perspective are you telling it from? Because I'm going to learn from that, and I'm going to be in community with you. I'm going to experience um, uh, transformation because I... I hear your perspective on this story. Just a few weeks ago, we were looking in Exodus, right? This, this book that we're reading because of its liberation story, and we encountered laws of slaves. Yeah. Now, within their context, it was supposed to be actually liberalizing, giving rights to these slaves. But these become lines, verses in Exodus that are used in the United States to justify slavery. In this book that we are reading because of its liberation tale. So there is always this piece. Yeah. Um, I think Marilyn had another question. Uh, do, do you want to grab the microphone? Yes, and I think about the story that my friend here has talked about in Native Americans. Mm. All right. Native American uh, was alien yeah. to the people new to this continent. And yep. they were given the authority by Christians you know, to take the land literally, as it was John Great, my friend. Discovery. Yeah. Well, you think that the, so? Uh, if we get to the end of this chapter, which I don't think we are, we're going to succeed in doing tonight. Uh, we will hear exactly that narrative brought into it as well, right? Because this chapter ends with. I will send an angel before you, and you will go into the, the promised yeah, land, yeah. and you will drive out the Amorites and the Perizzites and, and everyone else, essentially. I think this counts. That means we finished the chapter Woo! and said those words. It's, um, um, so maybe we should return to... To the text. But, but I just want to quote what you're saying and say that's in the story, too, yeah. right? Like, we mm-hmm. are... Um, 
One thing that you've taught me, Daniel, is a rabbi of yours in school said, um, don't necessarily read the Bible to learn what you should do. Uh, some of the time you're learning exactly what you should not do. It's um, actually the, the author of that the book you're reading. Yeah. It's not I, in there. I think what she was saying was that, there, that with the Native Americans, they can read Exodus as you know, strangers coming into their land. Yeah. yeah. And, and all of a sudden, they are, in effect, the stranger. And it turns around on itself and how we treat the people Mm -hmm. whose land we are coming into Mm -hmm. as well. Yep. All right. So memory. Memory is important. The way we tell this story is important and the way we remember it is important. Um, And another of the big themes in it is actually right there in the next few verses. Does someone who has a microphone want to want to read if you have a Bible? We're right at verse 10. Verse 10. Oh, it looks like Roe will read again. For six years you may sow your land and gather its produce. Okay, we're going to pause you there. <laughs> what, what does this have to do with the verse before? Well, I, I, We have this great moral commandment a moment ago, and now we've got agricultural law. I, I think you need to let it go a little bit longer, Daniel, before you find out. You may have cut it okay, off. Okay, keep going, keep quickly. going. Let's see. I think I'm still going to object, but we'll see. Okay, all right. But, but in the seventh year, you must let it be fallow and leave it alone. Let it produce food for the poor of your people, and what they leave, the, the wild animals may eat. You are to do likewise with your vineyard and your olive grove. Okay, we'll pause you there. Yeah. Uh, okay, I see a little bit of a moral connection now. Right, right. Uh, yeah, we're dealing with the laws of how you should treat the vulnerable. Exactly. Uh, th- this actually becomes Jewish law. That's uh, they use this as a metaphor. That there is a certain percentage of the money of the grain that you have. Right, we're talking about land that you own. In every seventh year, its produce does not belong to you. And from this comes the idea of tzedakah. Uh, uh, which often is translated as charity, but it's not charity. It's charity is optional. And tzedakah means justice. We're talking about economic justice here. Uh, and there is a notion that there is a percentage of the money that sits in your account that you do not own. And if you have not given the appropriate amount of money from your account to the needy amongst you, you have stolen from them, that it actually belongs to the needy. It is not optional. Uh, and that, that becomes a, a principle that emerges right from this. And, and would the, that percentage be uh, a seventh or whatever? No, it ends up with a whole calculation that ends up about 10%, 20% if okay. you're wealthy. Uh, so it's a progressive taxation system. Okay. Um, a sliding scale. A sliding scale. Huh. Yeah. It's considered, by the way, that that is 10%, if you're interested, of your net income not your gross before tax income. Uh, someone went and figured out what percentage of your gross actually goes to things that would be considered tzedakah, and it is unfortunately rather small. So taxes um, do not count. Your taxes do you not count. You can't say I paid that percentage of my income in taxes and I'm off the hook. No, because it turns out that the majority of our taxes go to things like the military and go to things that benefit you in the end. Uh, Social Security, even something like uh, the Medicaid and deductions that come out of your paychecks. In the end, they are a social safety net, is the idea. The roads you drive on. The roads uh, you drive, yeah, Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. 
So not charity, but justice. Yep. Um, okay, let's keep going. Next time we tithe as a church, right? Next stewardship campaign, you now you know what to say now. I'm sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> yeah, please. Could either of you repeat the Hebrew word again for the tithe? But it wasn't, it was Sidaka. Sidaka. TZ is how you see it spelled. Hold on, I, gotta, I wasn't ready for the TZ. Please it's hold. the same sound that an English word that ends with TS is, bets. Okay. How um, do I spell that TZ? What now? We just don't put it at the beginning of a word typically in English. Sadaka. TZ, Adaka. Got it. Um, so that's where modern day, the, is that where, does that corroborate like the verse in Malachi from where most Christians get the modern day commandment for tithing? Bring 10% of your storehouses and 10% of what you have? Basically, In yes. Jewish culture, present day, is that primarily done financially or do people actually do it with clothing and food and other items? Or is it predominantly, as in the Christian church today, predominantly just with funds? Primarily through funds. Okay. Uh, but it can be whatever, it all counts. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that this is considered to be a totally separate mitzvah, a totally different commandment than the commandment to do acts of justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, I always compare this to, uh, there, there's three commandments. There's uh, tzedakah, which is economic justice. That's uh, writing a check to a food pantry. Mm-hmm. There's gimilud chasidim, acts of loving kindness. That's volunteering at the food pantry. And there's tikkun olam, which is the repair of the world. We're talking about the structural about, yeah. pieces. Like, yeah. why do we need food pantries at all in fixing that? Um, and all three are considered to be independent commandments. In doing a lot of one doesn't fulfill your obligations in the other two. Thank you. Here we go. We have seven minutes left before it's eight. Well, o'clock. we're cruising. So um, I really, I really want to get to the to the festivals. Yeah, um, let's go. So yeah, will somebody read from verse twelve, and we will try not to. Interrupt and you. please, someone interrupt me if I interrupt. How far do you want to go? As quickly as you can. Just we'll start, start at verse 12 and cruise. For six days you may do your work, but on the seventh day abstain from work so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and your home-born slave and the alien may re- um, refresh themselves. Be, it, be attentive to every word of mine. You must not... Uh, involve other gods their names are not to cross your lips they're so just to note that we've changed genres here right we were dealing with these uh what we think of as sort of moral commandments right here the idea of the sabbath and a day of rest uh it's a justification not that you should do it because you were led out of egypt which is the main reason not that you should do it to imitate god who rested on the sixth day on the seventh day which is the other reason but because of the needs of the vulnerable, that you have to provide rest for them. Uh, it's a justice-based read of the Sabbath. So I have a question, actually. Yeah, please. So um, there's a lot of like issues nowadays, like in what is truth and like ultimate truth, uh, and if that even exists. And I guess my question, just from like looking at this and talking about it. It seems like there is, in the sense that God is the one who creates everything, so truth inevitably comes from him because no matter what I say, the sun is still going to rise in the east and set in the west, and the fruit's only going to be produced because God allows it to be produced, and if God chooses for it not to be produced, it won't. Um, 
So I guess my, my thing is like, when it comes to these questions, it seems almost like God gave the Torah and the laws so that we could learn how good he is and how, um, in a sense, like I've, I've been told like the Bible is a love story between God and his people and the only way you get to know somebody and love them is by getting to know them. And this is the best way that God thinks we can do that. So it's kind of like us when we debate and talk about like these laws and these truths, we're getting to know God and getting to know truth in in that Hmm. sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think arriving at truth is the ultimate goal. As long as we're humble enough to acknowledge that we may be too limited to ever see it in its full, right? So it's not it's not limiting God. It's simply saying we recognize that we are limited in our in our intellect, but also in our goodness. Um, you know, the thing it's not it's not just that God is expands beyond my my power to comprehend intellectually it's that god loves and knows every human being every creature on the earth every care on their head and if i'm honest with myself i know i cannot do that right like i have a, a finite amount of love um so we can say yes we we can look to this text and we can look to our conversation with each other to try and arrive at the truth but we need to know that the full truth is really beyond us. We can we can see glimpses. I think. Um, do you have, do you have a response to that? So while the microphone's moving over, I I come from a tradition. Uh, I, I follow a Jewish philosopher called Rambam or Maimonides, uh, who lived about a thousand years ago. And what he says is that truth, or, or that God is truth. God is capital T truth, about which we can never know. That we are within the system. So we can never really know outside of it, right? We can never actually know anything about God. All we can do is say what God is not. Uh, And from this, though, Maimonides, Rambam takes the next step and he says, if you can't ever know anything with certainty about the creator, the only way to understand the creator is through understanding creation. And so what Maimonides does is he he creates... um, a theology of science, that science and the act of discovering creation becomes the greatest form of worship. Um, yeah, please. Yeah, and the passage that, that was just read, uh, chapter 23, verse 12, it refers to home-born slaves. Mm. Someone spoke earlier to the idea of aliens, but... What is this idea of home-born slaves in this context? Uh, it means that if somebody were, were impoverished and had children or themselves, they could sell themselves and their children into slavery. So they would be children who were actually Jews, if I'm getting this correct. So they would be home-born. They wouldn't be from somewhere else. And they would be enslaved because of poverty. Um, which... Yeah, it's important to understand that when we use the word slavery to talk about what happened in the Bible, and we use the word slavery to talk about uh, the experience of slavery on this continent, and they're actually relatively different concepts. Uh, Biblical slavery is much more akin to um, indentured servitude. 
Uh, you can't be a slave except under some very particular uh, situations for longer than uh, the six-year period and uh, all sorts of pieces like that that provide protections uh, towards that human being. Not that it's a wonderful system when any human being is owned, uh, but we're not talking about uh, the offals of American racial slavery. Um, that said, it could still be pretty awful. It could still be pretty awful, women, um, particularly for women. There, yes, yeah. We, I don't think we want to make it rosier. No, no, no. There's nothing rosy about this. Yeah. Um, um, I do. I do just want to go back a minute and say that I. I don't think I would be part of the school of Maimonides like you. So, so we said this is argument, right? And um, uh, because I, I really like the idea that we actually can grow to know things about God. Hmm. But the, and this comes from Richard Rohr, but the problem is that for everything we know about God, we discover 10 more things that we don't know that we need to go and explore and, and discover. So it's not that God is completely unknown, it's just that God is forever expanding beyond the realm of our knowledge. Okay, I definitely disagree. Yeah, yeah. there we go, see. I mean, for me, <laughs> you mentioned the, the sun will always rise in the east and set in the west. Uh, Except maybe we don't understand science right. Maybe it won't always do that. <laughs> and so there is an ultimate truth there of what will happen with the sun and the earth and relative to that. And the earth will be enveloped into the sun at some point and all these other sorts of things. That we don't know or understand the fullness of it, but it doesn't make it any less true. And to me, that is the nature of God. That there is no way to know the divine, even if the divine is a truth that exists. If that makes sense. Or it doesn't. So we're at 8.01. Um, does that mean we, we need to end, or can I ask a question about festivals? Quick. No, Marshall is saying we're, we're done. Okay, thanks, Marshall. Uh, so we'll just have to talk about festivals some other time. Some other time. I, for the people who are here, does it, do we have to clear out of here, or can we take some questions here? Is that... If you want to stick around and ask some questions, feel free, but don't feel obligated by any means. Five or ten minutes. Great. Oh, Lovely. Okay. So I say we move away from this for a moment. Okay. Um, the last piece I would say is that all of the tangents that we have done, that's the point of Chavruta. So I'd really invite you to find a partner yourself to study with. Study anything. It does not matter what you pick up to study. Whatever... Uh, uh, text you pick. Uh, if you do this, if you argue back and forth, the tangents are the point. The ways that it applies to your life and the world around you, that's the point. That's what the text is supposed to do. And I, I, I mean, Christians, uh, Christianity d does not have this Talmudic tradition, right? So we don't have like our scripture in the center of a page with all these different arguments mm -hmm. placed around it. Um, but we do, of course, have great theologians, and we also have great artists, poets, um, we have all sorts of people to be in conversation with, right? So to me, one of the powers of, of uh, the Talmud is that you're not only in conversation with your partner, you're in conversation with these generations of rabbis, yep. and I often find myself thinking, how can I increase my conversation with generations of Christians, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think Part of that is is reading theology. There's um, there's a really good series that was actually put out by um, by Wheaton 
um, scholars in Wheaton, Illinois, that um, is early Christian writings on scripture, and it goes book by book, so you could get oh, like cool. the Mark version, and it would give you, you know, Augustine and Origin, huh. and et cetera. So that's one way you could kind of slip into conversation there. Mm-hmm. But also, I would say just go to like WikiArt or something and look up, you know, a story, The Good Samaritan, and you'll see like 50 paintings, some of them from the from very recently, and every one of them is a conversation, right? Every one of them is a way to continue this conversation. So, so continuing the conversation, what? Any questions uh, about anything? Doesn't have to be specific to this. You, you may have asked them all while we were yeah. going. Yeah. As far as I know. Hello. As you were talking about um, coming from different tribes and different places in the story, I just kept thinking towards, you know, the whole theme of identity, right? And um, what kind of prophecy do we sense from the word in Exodus and in, in what comes ahead? What, what do we, how can we forecast into the future through the formation of identity in Exodus in some way? Boy, is that a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know. So one thing to remember about Exodus, of course, is uh, first of all, they don't get to the promised land in Exodus, right? Um, you need three more books to, to get there. And then Moses doesn't even get to go there. And Jews don't get there. We go through the end of Deuteronomy, and then we start our cycle all over again with Genesis. We never read Joshua and arrive in the promised land. Right. I mean, we read it in other contexts, but not in our uh, weekly Bible reading. Yeah. But, but there is this question of, so why are they in the wilderness for 40 years? It's a really long time. It does not take that long to get from Egypt to the land of Canaan. It just doesn't. They could have done it in how long? Like a couple of months, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the, the answer, probably the most common answer is that they, the generation that was slaves in Egypt needed to die out in order for a new people to be formed. That you cannot enter into freedom with the mindset that you had when you were enslaved. Um, yeah. You can't enter into freedom if you're still in the mindset of, of who you were when you were in bondage, when you were enslaved. Now, we might argue with that, right? We might say, that, that doesn't seem right or whatever. But that is like the, the standard answer given for why it takes them so long to get through the wilderness. It's so that they can learn how to be free. Um, right? I think yeah. I'm not too far off with that. Yeah, I mean, the, the experiences of profound trauma leave an impact upon us that is carried with us. I mean, when you look at Holocaust survivors, for instance... They are unique in their political approach, too. And that's what we're really talking about is politics, right? Once you enter into the land, we're dealing with politics. Uh, And Holocaust survivors do not line up like anyone else, including the children of Holocaust survivors don't look like their peers. Uh, And the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors have distinguishable mental illnesses that exist within them, unique to the grandchildren. It's, right, these traumas we carry even when we think we don't. Um, I mean, that's that classic line, right? That the sins exist to the third or the fourth generation. And if we read that not as a prescription of what happens, but as a description of what happens when you experience trauma. Yeah, I mean, I I think this is all pretty problematic, and we don't necessarily have to agree with every piece of it. Um, I mean, I, for one thing, don't 
you know, I prefer the, the other argument in scripture, which is that those sins don't actually persist. <laughs> you know, like who, who sinned? This man's parents said he's born blind? No, he was born blind so that in order to show the glory of God, right? So we have an actual counter-argument in the scripture to that point of view. But if we're pro- prognosticating about the future, we might ask, why is it that Americans are always looking for the next generation to save us? Right? Like, why is the hope right now in the millennials? Um, and the reason is because I think we know in our heart of hearts that we are in the wilderness, right? That, that our minds are still in bondage to all sorts of things. And we, are, we keep hoping that we will overcome that bondage through the sojourn through the wilderness and that the next generation will actually mm. enter the promised land. Uh, it's both humbling and maybe fairly humble, but um, I don't, we keep doing it over and over again, which makes me worry that we've been in the wilderness for a lot more than 40 years, yeah. and I don't, I don't know how to prognosticate, you know, I don't know how to predict how we're going to get free. <laughs> Do you? Do you know how we're going to get free of all this stuff? No. No. Yeah. Sorry, it's a downer. Yeah. We are a nation of immigrants. Some of us by choice and some of us by bondage. But nevertheless, and memory serves the purpose of that, and why are we always looking forward and, and not also incorporating what we remember of the past? That's difficult. Mm, that is. I love that word memory, because it's not history. Right? I mean, first of all, it applies when we're talking biblically. It doesn't matter whether these things happen the way they're described or not. It's, I think, about how we remember them more than anything else. But it, I mean, it also reflects on our power, and we have the power to shape memory. Right? What is the story that we tell? Do we tell the story of America is a land founded for freedom, or do we tell the story of America is a land that was built on uh, stolen land by stolen lives? Um, they're different stories, and they both can be history, but the memory is how it affects us. Right. Um, okay, so maybe I will end with uh, my favorite midrash, which is a little uplifting. Uh, a different read <laughs> on the power of freedom. So there's a midrash that talks about Abraham standing on Mount Moriah about to sacrifice Isaac. This Midrash says that he's holding the knife in his hand and that he actually begins coming down with it to slaughter his son and an earthquake happens that causes the knife to fall from his hand. Midrash, right? You're not going to find this in the text. So the rabbis ask the question, where did the earthquake come from? And the answer that they offer is that the earthquake came from the rumbling of the ground as the Israelites crossed from slavery to freedom. Right? Right? And this, to me, is the beauty of Midrash, because it's not about what happened, it's about how we remember it. And this is a memory that says that the power of the journey towards liberation sends shockwaves through space and through time. Sometimes sends shockwaves backwards, because yeah, the right? sacrifice of Isaac takes place long before the exodus, right? But that's kind of an amazing thought, to think, like, we, we work for justice now, not only for ourselves and for people of the future, we're actually working on behalf of the people of the past, yeah. right? Yeah. And is it possible in the in the kind of eternal mind of God 
that what we do now will actually help someone who's been dead for a hundred years. <laughs> I don't know, man. We're, we're getting a little metaphysical, but, but um, yeah. that's what it invites us to do. Thank you, everyone. Yep. Thanks very much. Oh. Thank you.